Welcome to YB Voices. For this Asia-Pacific series, in our fifth episode, Transition Back to School, Part 1, we've brought together educators from Hong Kong and Australasia to discuss how they maintain connectivity, resilience and positivity during virtual learning and what they'll bring back as they transition back to school. I'm your host, Steve Wishart, IBWS Manager for Australasia. I'll start by introducing each of the presenters and I'll start with Josh. Josh Blue is an international educator based in Hong Kong. He's currently the vice principal at ESF Kennedy School and will commence his new role as head of primary at Discovery College in August. Josh has a master's degree in educational leadership and change and is an active IBE. Welcome and thanks for supporting the podcast, Josh. Thank you, Steve. David Boardman is principal of the senior school at Kirsten School in New Zealand. David is currently a member of the IB Heads Council, secretary of IB Schools Australasia and chair of New Zealand of the New Zealand IB Heads Caucus. David is an expert in student and staff well-being and a veteran of the podcast, having served as a panellist previously. Thanks for your uh, time again, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back, Steve. Thank you. Finally, Kim Jackson is the principal of Kung Young Primary School. She's an active member of the Victorian and Tasmanian PYP network. Kim has expertise in staff development and supporting dynamic learning environments. Welcome, Kim, and, and thanks for sharing your time and expertise with us. Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. We will start off by asking about your current school context. Are you still engaged in online learning? Are you in the transition back to school? Or are your students back to face-to-face -face, uh, learning? We might start with you, Josh. Great. So we've just adopted a 50-50% model across the English Schools Foundation. So that means at any given time, 50% of our students are in the building and 50% are at home. So for us in the primary schools across ESF, we had different models that worked for our setup and the space that we had, since we have to still abide by the education department's guidelines um, and the Center for Health Protection. So trying to maintain a meter social distancing between five-year-olds is really challenging, mm. uh, as one might imagine. So we started back on Monday with our years four and six at school and the other year level still at home. Today we have five and six and tomorrow will be two, four, six. And then Thursday is one, three, five. And then we go back to two, four, six. And we'll see how that goes. So far, the most interesting part of the day has been lunch. The Hong Kong government's required us to have a canteen when we don't have a canteen. So we've converted our hall and there's just rows and rows of chairs with meter spacing. And the kids have to sit in there and eat their break and snack, or their snack and lunch. It's gone okay. I'm not sure how it's gonna go with the five-year-olds on Thursday. Thanks, Josh. What about you, David? Well, we're actually, uh, we're fully back face-to-face -face teaching now, and we have been for the last 10 days. Uh, before that, we had two weeks when only year seven to year 10s were back in school uh, and the seniors were out. So we, we've gone back pretty much through the whole transition back into school uh, and are now dealing with some of the, actually some of the well-being uh, knock-on effects of that, um, which I'll discuss a little bit later on. So we're in a very very lucky situation in New Zealand oh. compared with uh, a lot of other countries. Thank you. 
We've had just um, today, actually, our preps to two. So our five, six, seven-year-olds have come back to school and our year threes to sixes still um, participating in our remote learning program. So we've only just had our uh, 350 junior students um, come back today. So, <laughs> wow. yeah. Thank you. All right. So when you were away from school, how did you maintain connectivity, resilience, positivity during virtual learning? Josh? I think one of the most significant ways that we did that was through our assemblies. We felt it was really important to still come together as a school. And so we would record assemblies every week to be posted then live to the community. And we've been stopped on the street about the assemblies. Uh, we decided we would travel around the world and take suggestions from students. So each week we visited a different place. Recently we were in Egypt and so that was fun. But it was just a way to kind of keep things light Hong Kong's been in lockdown since February 3rd. So for us to come back at this point, it's been a long time. Mm. And it was evident early on that we needed to remain visible. And just to say that, you know, things might look different, but we're still here and we're still a school and we're still your community, um, which was really important. Obviously throughout the home learning period, we've had continuous communication with families whether that was through phone calls that were made, emails or coffee mornings uh, held virtually, or through the Zoom calls that were happening um, within the classes. So we've just tried to remain visible and active within the community. Thanks, Josh. David? Some very similar things to, to what Josh was describing there. You know, we've made sure that things like our dean's meetings, any committees are still up and running, just running via Zoom and students obviously able to communicate digitally, but also setting challenges for the students as well. So really focusing on their well-being and focusing on the Maslow side of things rather than, as we said last time, Maslow before blooms, and really putting those hierarchy of needs as, as the priority. So connections, making sure that the students could continue to um, work alongside their peers, so we've had students you know, and teachers setting physical challenges. We've had the principals. One of our principals is a very keen runner. So he did some video or some vlogs about maintaining fitness and well-being and was filming while he was running. I cycle, so I did a similar one around cycling and, and launched those for both students and staff. For one thing, it gave them a really good laugh. It allows them to see us in a completely different light, which mm. the students and the staff really liked. But it maintains that feeling of community and togetherness uh, when you're, in fact, very separated physically. And Kim? Yeah, look, fairly similar to what's already been mentioned. Um, probably the thing, the main thing that worked for us was our staff, um, our classroom teachers being constantly on... Um, Google Meets, conferences, focus groups with the students and keeping their learning going along as it had been. So apart from being at home and being on a computer, they didn't see a lot of difference in the way they were actually being taught. Um, so that connected a lot of our students that there were familiar things that they, um, that they normally did. As far as a leadership team goes, that constant connection and communication with parents, which I'm sure the others did as well, but um, for a while there, it was a daily Jackson's word just keeping parents up to date with what was going on at school on that day because our leadership team was still in school with 50 students who were 
participating in on-site learning. So letting people know what was happening, keeping them up to date. I love the idea, Josh, about the assemblies. We went and did a live Facebook assembly every Friday and it was incredibly live. It was um, <laughs> mistakes and all, but it was the leadership team just having segments, having fun. Um, it was a, something that, similar to what you were saying, everyone logged into on a Friday. We had a thousand views. We were very excited about that. So just having fun with the students so they could see that everything was actually still going on and everything was okay with us at school. But I would probably say jumping into Google Meets and just being there, the, the students love seeing their leaders um, anyway, especially in primary, as you would know, but seeing them on Google Meets was really exciting for them. But probably working through the classroom teacher and the classroom teacher having that morning Google Meet, which I know we're not the only ones that did that, an afternoon Google Meet to touch base at the end of the day, and just those conferences and focus groups that the students could see, they were, they were making contact with their teacher on a daily basis for those little ones was really important for us. Oh, fantastic. You know, given what we've said there, where you saw students that were perhaps struggling with well-being and so forth, what strategies did you have to support those students that perhaps were in an environment that was quite different to what they're normally in and perhaps the teacher or a member of the leadership team or whoever was in contact noticed something wasn't quite right. What, what sort of strategies did you have in place there? Kim, did you have anything in place to deal with that? I think most of the things that we did are similar to others, but we had a system where if a student hadn't made contact with the teacher for 48 hours, um, that was passed on to our wellbeing leader who would contact the family um, in some mm. cases, it was a computer issue that we tried to help mm. problem solve with the family. Um, you can see uh, other people probably in the same boat. For some students, it was um, not wanting to go on, not wanting to do anything. It was probably a parenting issue, I would say, if I could be so bold. For some of those students, we offered the on-site learning for them a couple of days a week. So when they were with us, we actually got them on, got them learning, um, and then they went home. They were at home for a couple of days as well. So we've had some house visits, some of our, particularly our funded students, our integration aides made some home calls and obviously um, socially distanced wow. themselves, but, you know, dropped things around, um, made connections with them. Mm. So I know a lot of schools in our area did a wellbeing Wednesday or something akin to that. I think that was quite popular in Victoria. We didn't have a wellbeing Wednesday, but we looked at days that were screen free, which again, I'm sure other people did as well, um, and gave a whole lot of ideas, um, a matrix of ideas to families and students where they could sort of do things that were um, off the screen and were particularly about their wellbeing. But Sometimes I don't like to separate well-being from other things. I think it's a we wanted them to be watch, looking after their well-being all of the time, not just on a Wednesday. But there's some of the things that we put in place, which I'd love to hear what the others what the others did as well. Yeah, thanks, Kim. David. So obviously we had our teachers regularly communicating with with the students on almost a day-to-day -day basis. I suppose it depended very much on the age and stage of the students, the degree of that contact. The face-to-face, -face, um, we used Zoom, um, sort of was reduced as the students got more senior and more um, self-directed. But those teachers, obviously, were the first point of contact for the students. We also had their deans checking in with them regularly. And we had regular weekly surveys going out as well. For those students who weren't comfortable in actually expressing how they felt in that digital environment with all their peers, 
they, they did have a way of giving feedback. So we had our counselors actually delivering that and collecting data. And then any students who were highlighted as at risk, I suppose at the time, or who were undergoing problems or having difficulties with the environment as it was, those counselors then made one-to-one contact with them, you know, offline, phoned them up, spoke mm. to the students, if necessary, spoke to the families as well, and then communicated back with the deans about what was going on so they could follow up. So that, that complete sort of circular wraparound program was in place for them. And we did get a lot of feedback from their friend groups as well, from their peers who they were dealing with outside of the classrooms. And that information was really good. And we found that, especially with the more senior students, that was incredibly useful. And um, because again, depending on the, the cultural background of the student you're dealing with, they may not feel comfortable raising, especially mm. men- mental health issues. But their friends who were concerned about them actually knew that they could in confidence do that with the school and we would then help and support those students and make sure they were in contact with somebody they could talk to. Fantastic. Thanks for that, David. Josh? Very similar to Kim and David. Maybe the thing I could add is our learning support department worked really closely with our families to ensure that those students who had already been identified prior to going into home learning were actively followed up upon, um, either by the teachers in that department or the educational assistants. So those students received daily personal Zoom calls and interaction to make sure that they were being supported. From a well-being perspective, I think a lot of what we did came down from the messaging that we sent to families. Uh, We made it very clear very early on that families were to engage at a level that was appropriate for them that this was not to be an added stressor and that it was really important for families to make that decision. So if there were tasks that were assigned or if there were a couple days that weren't going to work for the family, then that that was okay, that no one was going to be penalized for that. And I think overall that seemed to have worked. We didn't have any major issues in the four months that we were online. Yeah, I think that really flexible approach and, and making sure that families understood you know, you may have an off day or two or, or whatever, that, that's fine. And that, that it is an adjustment from the normal. As much project. as we didn't sign up to work from home, most parents didn't sign up to educate their yeah. children. Um, so yeah. I think that that's a real thing that we needed to consider and that yeah. we weren't expecting them to become teachers because yeah. it's really important that they stayed in that parent role because there's a very fine line there. And when we start to cross that, that's when issues start to arise that affect the family as a whole and to just be conscious of that. And I think that really leads into our next question. I'm conscious of how schools have supported families beyond direct student wellbeing. What strategies have schools used to perhaps support families? And in many cases around the world, families are under considerable stress for a number of reasons that's going to have an impact upon student learning, but also just how are schools supporting parents that are under significant pressure? I think originally we had a a utopia in mind that um, everyone was well, but at home, working from home, and that we kept saying to the parents, you are not the teachers. You are just facilitating what we provide and we don't expect you to become the teachers. It's not a home learning program. You haven't chosen to learn from home. So whilst that was everything we were saying, when the reality actually hit 
for five, six and seven year olds and eight year olds, that wasn't the reality. The, the parents did have to do a lot more work than we actually thought they would initially what they would have to do. So communicating, 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 but then also getting the uh, parent feedback that we're getting too much communication. So I really feel that we just hit our straps with the parents knowing what was going on, the teachers in a really good groove. Everyone was sort of communicating just the right amount, a bit like Goldilocks, we just got there and the students were back at school. <laughs> so I almost feel like I wanted another three or four weeks just to keep going with what we were doing. But um, the reality is that once the parents could get back to work and students back to school, then that's what we needed to do. So just supporting our parents, as I said, the, the teacher, the class teacher support, then the year level teacher support, and then as an administ as administrative team, supporting um, families on that level as well. And our parents um, expect a lot from us. We're a state government school surrounded by um, independent schools. And so where the independent schools um, have their students online from 9 to 3.30 and every teacher taking every session um, mm. and the parent could pretty much put the students in front of the computer and the teachers ran the day. Of course, no, not at Kanyang. We wanted our students to keep developing agency, to keep mm. running with a personalised learning program, to keep being inquiry-based. So as a result of that, we didn't really have the same structure as the schools up the road. So by the time we got parents into that understanding of what we were doing and why, um, they all came back to school. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kim. David? Yeah, I think like, like Kim said you know, earlier, communication was one of the key things. Um, we were in a very lucky situation that we, we were in lockdown for two weeks and then we had our Easter holiday, um, which everybody pretty much treated as, as normal, apart from the fact they couldn't go anywhere, and then another two weeks of lockdown. So there was no extended period. But from um, the school's perspective, it was really giving the parents information, keeping them informed, uh, and in the senior school as well, not, not only, you know, what the school is doing and how they're supporting the students, but also dealing with some of those anxieties around the longer term education and what the impact would potentially mm -hmm. be on those senior students who are looking towards the end of the year. So reassuring them that the students were still on track with their online learning, that really, you know, basically we we've got this don't worry trust us you trust mm. us on a normal day-to-day -day basis trust us now you know although we are learning this new approach this new pedagogy um we're professionals we, we can handle this so getting that message across clearly but also our parent community in itself was a great help you know we have a group of parents because we've got about 42 different cultures within the school so we've got parents from a large number of those cultures who work with the school and act as intermediaries, where for those parents who English is their second or third language, very different cultural backgrounds, it can be quite difficult for us to communicate effectively mm -hmm. and really know what they want to hear and how to actually communicate that across. Um, but those parents who work with us were priceless in this time you know they were able to get alongside those parents they understood the cultural pressures they understood the pressures of having family overseas who were experiencing very different conditions to what we were and could communicate easily and effectively 
So that they were a great intermediary because we as educators have this horrible habit of when under pressure, slipping into that educational speak, mm. which we all understand. But actually at these times, you want to throw all of that away and just speak in plain language that's reassuring, welcoming and uh, comforting for those parents. Yeah, thanks, David. Josh, your context is interesting in that probably from an international perspective, I'd imagine some parents may have been under pressure in terms of jobs and so forth. There is quite a bit of pressure and uh, communication, obviously very important. And everything that David and Kim said, you know, rang true here. I think for us, the most important thing that we did was listen. And then we communicated back in response to what we were hearing. Within two weeks of starting home learning, we sent home a survey to families to find out how things were going. We went meticulously through that data and then adapted to what the families needed. And we made it very clear why we were making those changes, linking it back to the feedback so that it wasn't going to come back at us again. And then about four weeks after that, we did another survey. And once again, we listened and fed into that. I think one of the biggest things, at least in the communication from my perspective, and so I look after primarily years one and two, so our youngest learners. And although I understand that the most important thing that they can be doing is playing, that's not always how parents see things. And so just to be able to communicate the fact that learning and teaching don't have a sell-by date was really crucial to our communication. Because we understand as educators that you know, the outcomes that we have, whether we're in a state system or a, a national system or an independent system, those outcomes, they might be outcomes, but they're not law per se. We can take those outcomes and we can address them when is appropriate for our learners. And so for parents to understand that, what we're doing isn't set in stone and that it's flexible was a really big learning curve for our community. And to get them on board to see that no one was missing anything. This wasn't about missing four months of school. This was about working on different skill sets yeah. and personal and social and emotional well-being. And that, you know, it doesn't matter if at the end of year two, you know, where a full stop goes, or if that happens at the end of year three, because it's, it's not significant, but the bigger picture was. And so being able to listen to where the concerns lied, and then um, working with the parents to understand a bit better. Because yeah. I think David's point about, you know, we understand the pedagogy, we understand the rationale behind everything, but until we communicate that clearly to our learning communities, then it doesn't mean anything to them. And they're really the most important people who need to know. Yeah. Uh, hopefully uh, out of this, there's a re-understanding of the importance of teachers and, and, oh, and the complex yeah. role that educators and leaders within an education system play. Just from conversations that I've had with parents, that's been clearly evident. Thank you for joining us on part one of this episode. Visit our website where you can subscribe to IB Voices. Be sure to tune in to part two of the episode.